We study billionaires, and this is episode 112 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Seoul, South Korea. Today, we have a book for you, and this one is called Idea Man a memoir by the co-founder of Microsoft. And this was written by billionaire Paul Allen. And for anybody who doesn't know who Paul Allen is, he is the guy who was the co-founder of Microsoft and head programmer along with Bill Gates to build the whole Microsoft enterprise. I think Paul really kind of goes completely unnoticed when talking about Microsoft. Everyone just says Bill Gates, Bill Gates, Bill Gates. But you read this book, and I think that you do a little bit of homework on how Microsoft got started, and you'll see that Paul Allen had an enormous part of what Microsoft ultimately became. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. I don't know if you feel this way, Preston, but I almost had this impression that Bill Gates, he founded the company, and there was someone named Paul or something. He was like his helper. Clearly, I, I'm laughing as I'm saying this, but I haven't thought too much about it. Clearly, I would know Bill Gates, and I was kind of sure that there was some other guy at some point in time, perhaps in the beginning, but I didn't know there was actually a real partnership before I read this book. So I'm just going to throw out my opinion. I loved this book. I really enjoyed reading this because it's almost like you got the second story. You know when you hear a story from a friend and they're like, and it sounds like it's too good to be true? And you just want to hear the other person's side of the story. And after you hear that, you're like, oh, it all makes sense now. Like everything comes together and it all makes sense now. That's kind of how I felt about the whole Microsoft story after reading this book. It made total sense because you were then seeing the other vantage point, which was awesome. I think that's probably why I liked it so much. And I see Stig, you're nodding your head. You agree? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And another thing is that if you're into technical stuff, this is the perfect book for you. And we're also going to talk more about this whenever we're talking in details about the chapters. But he's also not only talking about the founding of Microsoft and what's happening in his personal life, he's also talking about the development of the personal computer, which for me was a discussion that I thoroughly enjoyed. So if you're super geeky like us, I'm sure you will enjoy it too. This book starts off. And the thing that I also liked about the way Paul organized this book was he really starts from the beginning. He starts from the time that they were just little kids. And you should see some of the pictures in the hard copy of this book of Bill Gates, especially. I mean, he looks like he is seven years old or something ridiculous. But these two were just little, tiny kids. They don't even look like they know how to read in some of these pictures. And they're sitting at this Altair computer that was like the very, very beginning. At the very beginning of programming, personal computing, these two are there nugging away at their private school. And that's something that Paul Allen talks about is this relationship with Bill Gates because they both went to a private school. Their parents paid a little extra money for them to have the privilege of going to a fantastic school. And one of the perks that this school had was they had purchased shared time on an Altair 
And the way that these Altairs worked is they basically went into a larger server for computing. And so they're there basically on this computer writing code and testing things out. And I mean, you're dealing with punch cards and all sorts of things back in the day. And so these two just developed the total fascination with this thing. They were there every waking second is the way that I read it from the story. Any spare moment that they had, they were sitting at this computer just programming until they're just falling asleep at the thing because they liked it so much. And it also talked about this rivalry that these two had back and forth to see who was smarter and more intelligent. They were highly competitive with respect to intellect. Paul Allen, how many years older was he, Stig? Like three or four years older than Bill Gates? Yeah, perhaps. It says here that he was actually the 10th grade, I think, and he met Bill when he was in his 8th grade, but I don't know the age difference. And the thing to understand here is that Bill Gates, he might be 14th, like when he was introduced, but he looked like he was, as you said, Preston, 7, 8 years perhaps. You gotta (laughs) see some pictures. It's hilarious. The thing that I like so much about this is Bill Gates was spunky at that age. So like he might have looked like he was seven or whatever, but I mean, he was really kind of bossing Paul Allen around as a 10th grader and just really kind of authoritative and almost like a dictator, like at such a young age. And so all those stories kind of came out. It was pretty awesome to hear these firsthand accounts of this back and forth of this young, like little twerpy Bill Gates. Yeah, I was impressed about how Paul Allen recalled some of the conversations that they had because Paul Allen, he was into all the technical stuff and that was all that he talked about. And then what Bill was talking about was, well, I just read this in Fortune magazine and I have this plan of how we can hire 35 programmer and eventually turn it into a Fortune 500 company. And this was a kid. I mean, he was in eighth grade and he's almost had like a business plan on, on how to you know build a Fortune 500 company. I mean, he was just so much ahead of his time. I was thoroughly impressed by this. Well, I think it goes back to one of these major themes that we see on this show. Is this kid was thinking, not big, he was thinking enormous at like 13 or 14 years old. He's talking about owning a Fortune 500 company. How many kids at that age do you think are saying that kind of stuff or even thinking it? I mean, like none. So this is how this guy was thinking right from the start. And so Paul Allen... Stig nailed it. I mean, he was the technical guy. He's talking about assembly language, like how he can program ones and zeros because that's where his interest was. He had this real interest on how a person could literally communicate with a computer through assembly language, where Bill Gates was thinking much more bigger picture. How could I write a program that I could monetize and sell and build a business? And so you can see how these two went together like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. And Bill might come off like he was the businessman. That was all he could do. But he was an amazing programmer. And I have two things I want to mention here. The first thing is that Alan actually had to say that at that time, whenever you were educating yourself, you needed to be an efficient programmer because there were no memory on these computers. So you couldn't waste any memory at all because you had to be so efficient. And he said that was a huge advantage that his generation had compared to later generations. Another thing was that Bill Gates basically wrote a language for the Altair machine in five days. That was something I was thoroughly impressed about. Like He said he needed time to think about the architecture of how he was doing it, but he actually called Paul, and we'll probably get to this story later, but he actually called Paul and said, I figured out how I wanted to write it. I'm locking myself into a hotel room. Then he spent five days. He sent the files to Paul and said, debug it, present it to the management. And that was it. And it worked. How amazing is that? 
I just want to put that up for the records. Like Bill Gates, a gifted programmer, if you ever saw one. Now, if you hadn't heard one of our previous episodes with the Malcolm Gladwell book, he did a really interesting discussion about how Bill Gates and even Paul Allen at this point had put in so many hours at a point in time that was, you know, how many people at their age had this kind of access to this kind of computer that was just brand new on the market where you could start programming. And these guys were putting in hundreds upon hundreds of hours of learning at such a developmental stage in their life that they were literally just a landslide ahead of anybody when it came to competing with them when they were in their 20s. They were just light years ahead of people because of this. And that was a great highlight in his book to talk about how much of an advantage they had. Definitely. So if people want to check that out, it's episode 24 on the Investors Podcast. And it all talks about, and I don't want to deviate too much from actually the book here, but I think it's a great point that it's about how fast can you get to those magical 10,000 hours where you really master a skill. And Paul Allen, Bill Gates could do that pretty fast because they had the access when almost no one had that. Another thing was that, this is just like a side story that I found really amusing, was that they actually didn't have unlimited time because they needed to use the punch cards, but they actually hacked the system, so they had unlimited time. When they looked at the logs, they're like, these guys are are literally living on these computers. Like, they're not even getting off of them. This is like 24 hours a day that these two are sitting on these computers because it was expensive. It was really expensive to get even a sliver of time on these servers. And (laughs) these two hacked the information. I guess they were, I can't remember exactly how the story went, but they dove into a dumpster where they were able to pull some paperwork from a company to basically use the account access from some of the people when they were at home, not using their allotted time. And these two were logging in and, oh boy. And then they got in all sorts of trouble. And then it happened again when Gates, he goes to Harvard and Paul Allen talks about how he literally moved to Boston to be out there by Bill Gates. And Gates had access to some of the computer labs there at Harvard. Well, Gates gave Paul Allen, his passwords and his access to get into the Harvard campus to basically use the computer time that Gates had when he wasn't using it. And so these two were continuing, literally moved across the entire country together to continue their programming habits because they were so addicted to programming. I just, for me, I I just freaking love this story. I, I found it just so entertaining to hear some of these firsthand accounts of these two and how obsessive-compulsive they were over programming. It was unbelievable. So anyway, they're there at Harvard. I want to say he was in his third year at Harvard. Do you remember when they got the deal here, the MITS deal? Yeah, probably even sooner than that. The way the story goes was that they wrote this programming language basic for the Altair machine. And it needs to be pointed out, they actually haven't had access to the hardware by then. They actually just wrote it, and it worked. Well, they wrote a simulation. For the computer, in order to simulate the computer that they were writing the software for, they basically adjusted some of the code and wrote a simulation program and then wrote the program and put it into the simulation to... So they had never been able to test it out on the actual device that they were programming, which I find absolutely amazing to tell you that their intellect at this level. They're 20, 21 years old at this point. Yeah. And it was a funny story because they actually called up the owner of Atel Mitch and said that they could actually do this, and they actually had like a language ready for them, and they didn't. It was just like a way to test the system. So this was the issue here. 
issue was that Paul, at that point, he actually grew a beard. So he was like the old one. And Bill Gates, he wasn't old enough to meet people at bars. Back then, you were typically meeting people at bar and restaurant. He wasn't old enough to drink. So they actually arranged that only Alan should go because he was the one that actually looked like he was an adult. So <laughs> this was really like, it was just so many entertaining stories because there were like two youngsters, teenagers, early 20s, behaving like they were 12, meeting up with grown-ups. And that was just another part of the story that I thoroughly enjoyed. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So Paul Allen was going to call down to the MITS company to talk to Ed Roberts, who was the guy who basically needed the basic software for his new computer. But 
Paul couldn't muster up the courage to basically call down there and pretend like they actually had a company or even pretend that they had a program because they hadn't even written anything. And so Paul Allen said, Bill, you've got to talk to him. You've got to do the talking because you can sound all official and like you're actually a real business. And so Bill decided, okay, I'll do that. So he called and they basically said, yeah, come on down here and show it to us. And then that's when they made the decision that Paul now had to go and actually represent Bill Gates's voice because he looked like he was old enough to actually own his own company. And then he got down there and didn't have enough money for his hotel room, which was funny. They were a mess, but they pulled it off. So they got down there. Like we said, they wrote a computer program for a device that they didn't even have. And they go down there to Texas, which was where they had to fly down to. Paul Allen goes down there with the code and they run it and it works the first time. And they were able to print out, what was it? Two plus two equals four. He printed two plus two equals four. And the gentleman admits who was going to pay them for the software looked at like, holy mackerel, this thing just did a math problem. That is totally insane. So really cool story to hear all this stuff firsthand is just amazing. All right. So after they got this contract, basically building the basic software for this newer personal computer that had come out, they really saw this as a huge opportunity that needed to be capitalized on. And so Bill Gates made the hard decision that he was going to drop out of Harvard and basically take a leave of absence and that he would go back and finish out his degree is what he had told his parents because he had to take advantage of this opportunity. And this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And that's exactly what they did. So these two left, they continued the program just like they were back when they were in middle school and high school at their private school together. And they just continued to write more and more code and work licensing deals and all sorts of things as they expanded. And this really shows you the brilliance of Bill Gates. So when they were writing the contract with this company, how many kids, let's just call them 21 at this point, would have the knowledge to retain the proprietary piece that they could license this to other companies outside of the MITS company that gave them the initial contract to put it on their personal computer. But that's where Bill Gates was at. Now, uh, let me caveat that with Bill Gates, his dad was a lawyer. So you know he was getting some type of advice from his dad, who was obviously a smart person. But still, to have that business sense, to be thinking through, you know, most people, they're so darn excited they got a deal that they just, you know, jump at it and then figure things out later. This guy was like, he was more concerned about having certain clauses in the contract for growth than anything else. And I mean, he was savvy. He was ridiculously savvy. And in another area when he was savvy was when they were there formed the partnership contract because it really was a partnership. And you would be thinking, so that was 50-50. But Bill Gates, his argument was that since Paul Allen was getting a salary, because Allen was actually collecting a salary from Mitch working in his company at this point in time. So he said, well, since I'm dropping out, I should have at least 60%. And also because I wrote the code for this. And Paul Allen was like, yeah, that's probably fair. And I think in some ways you might think it's fair, but I think that was probably also where the dynamic of the partnership really changed because it's weird if it's not really a 50-50 partnership. It messes up things. And Bill Gates didn't even went out to change the agreement at a later point in time where he wanted 64%. Preston, you can just sense how bitter Paul was at this. I mean, with all the billions of billions he had, like, he could have more billions. I don't think it was because of more money, though. It was like the principle of 
he was feeling that his contribution was diluted, not in terms of shares necessarily, but what the shares represented, I guess. You know, the book was written by Paul. So it's his opinion. So you're really getting that bias as you're reading this because you really get drawn into the story. And for me, he was very likable in the story. But for me, when I was reading this, I got the impression, wow, Bill Gates is really greedy, really not a team player at this point in his life when he was doing those kind of deals. I mean, he was in his 20s. I just got a sense that he was very greedy and just all about himself and not really looking at this as a 50-50 partnership with his longtime friend and partner. I'm sure there's the Bill Gates side to this. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'd love to hear how Bill Gates thought through this and why he felt that he needed an extra 4%. You know, To me, that was just crazy for him to be arguing with this guy that he's been in the trenches with since day one to want another 4%. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy greedy. And you know, Bill Gates might look at it today if you'd ask him about it and be like, yeah, you know, that was wrong. I don't know what he would say. Who knows? But that's how it was displayed in the book. And, you know, I think it's worthy of mentioning. But I also think that one should not just look at Paul Allen as the naive tech guy and not like the savage business person. He's actually talking about where he's considering whether or not they should be in Seattle or if they should move out to California. And he actually had this idea that he would rather be in Seattle because there were less distraction. And he was talking about it was raining more and raining was good because that meant that the program would sit more indoors and actually put in more hours. So, I mean, I just also want to put out for the record that Paul Allen, he, he seemed like a super nice guy, but he was also, when he needed to be, a very cynical and tough businessman. So I guess it was not just Bill Gates, who was also really tough running the show, and then Paul Allen not having any business sense at all, or that he could make the tough decisions or a thing in terms of money. He definitely was capable of doing that. And just as a highlight, so the reason they were thinking of moving back to the Seattle was the reasons that Stig mentioned, this is also where they grew up. And this is also where they went to school to, you know, through high school and everything. So they had an interest in going back there for family reasons as well. So as this matured, so Microsoft was a 50-person company, was a 100-person company. They worked dynamic deals with IBM. I think a lot of their brilliance was really understanding what their competitive advantage was through that growth period. And they were always the guys leading the pack. They were never behind the power curve. They were always thinking, what is the next product that we need to basically lead the market into? And from the book, And again, this is very biased. It seemed like Paul Allen led a lot of that innovation and thinking, and Bill Gates was more of the guy that was in the execution mode to make it happen. He was more of the guy like, get it done. And that's why I think the title of the book is Idea Man is because I think that's how Paul really wants to be remembered is he was the guy that was kind of feeding that innovation that needed to happen. And based on a lot of the information he provides in the book, I think he justified that opinion and backed it up pretty well. Later on, when Microsoft became pretty big, Bill Gates had a longtime friend from Harvard that he brought into the company, and this was Steve Ballmer. And Paul Allen highlights from his perspective how all of that went down, and it was not a pretty scenario from Paul's vantage point, because they had come to an agreement on a certain amount of equity that Steve Ballmer was going to receive by coming into the company. And then Bill Gates basically doubled it and never even told Paul and made him the offer of double the equity that they had 
previously between Paul and Bill had come up with what they thought was reasonable. And so Paul felt completely stabbed in the back over the way that the deal went down. And so then Balmer comes in as basically the operations officer. And it really seemed like that relationship between Balmer and Bill Gates matured to the point where it was really pushing Paul Allen more and more out of the company as far as his duties and responsibilities of what he was contributing. And it seemed to be more of the Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer show. And I think that left a very bad taste in Paul Allen's mouth. And when I was reading this, I got the sense that Paul has a lot of respect for Bill. Even to this day, I think that he really respects Bill Gates. And I think that he has an admiration for Bill Gates. I think that he feels like Bill Gates screwed him at certain points in his life. But I still think that they have a reasonable relationship with each other. And I think that they will absolutely. That's the impression I got from the book. Now, this book was written in 2010. And I mean, there's some things in here that said about Bill Gates that are definitely not something that I think anyone would want said about themselves. And so I'd be really curious to know how this was received by Bill Gates and how their relationship matured after this. Oh, what's this interview that was published not long after the book? I think it was in 60 Minutes. And they asked Paul Allen, so what did Bill think about the book? And he said, I don't know. I know that he'll read it, but I actually uh, don't know. And then they reached out to him. And apparently the response was that Bill Gates said that he was really glad that it was highlighted that Microsoft was a partnership because he didn't feel like Paul Allen was giving the respect that he was supposed to have from Microsoft. And I know this was, perhaps it was also the political correct answer, I don't know, but I thought actually that was a really warm response. <laughs> and I think that whenever Bill Gates, he's looking back, he can probably also see some of the mistakes that he made. But I want to say a few things here. The first one is that not all of them, but a lot of things that Paul Allen describes about Bill Gates is at a very young age. And I mean, if you literally are the smartest guy in the room, and I guess that Bill Gates usually were that and you're in your early 20s or late teens, whatever, yes, you are probably obnoxious and want to like to tell about how awesome you are all the time. I don't think anyone can see past that. I think it's more some of the situations that they incur later in terms of Paul Allen actually being very sick at some point in time and Bill Gates trying to buy him out. And like, I think that was not nice to read. But again, as you said, Preston, that was one side of the story Bill Gates might have experienced differently. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, 
a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let's talk about some of the stuff that Paul Allen did after he left Microsoft. So at this point, he was a billionaire in his 30s. And his current net worth, I think, is around $18 billion, somewhere around there. It's pretty high. So he had all this money after he left Microsoft because he still had an enormous portion of the equity. It was How much did he have when he left? He had 28%. He had originally 36 and then they sold something to a VC company. And also, as you said, Balma, he also got some equity. So he had an enormous part of the equity in Microsoft, had a huge sum of money. And so what does someone do after they have that large amount of money and aren't working for the company anymore? Well, what Paul Allen did is he went out and bought a basketball team, a professional basketball team. So he goes out and he buys the Blazers and he got deeply involved in being an owner of a professional sports team. Some other things that he did. So he got all involved into the uh, X Prize in doing this privatization of space, made huge capital investments. I forget how much ownership he had of the spacecraft that actually won the X Prize. And then you had Richard Branson, who I didn't realize that this is the way that this worked, but Richard Branson came in and worked a deal with them at the very end after they knew it was successful 
to basically brand the spacecraft with the Virgin name. See, I thought that Branson was involved with that from the very beginning and that like it was his brainchild, but it was actually not his project at all. It was something that he just kind of swooped in and basically paid to put his name on. I didn't know that. So that was really interesting discussion. And I mean, that was a whole entire chapter, chapter 16 on that entire development of that thing. It was amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting, Preston, now that we read Elon Musk's book about SpaceX and also Richard Branson's book. And now we're getting a third perspective of what really happened, which is probably somewhere in between. But it was really interesting to get that perspective as well. Yeah. And you could even add Jeff Bezos in there as well with the everything story. We, all these guys seem like after they make a billion, it's like, hey, you got to start your own space company. Part of the requirement. So this was another really interesting dynamic to Paul Allen. That, and I think this shows you how robust this guy's repertoire is. So... Not only is he probably one of the best programmers on the entire planet, he goes out and he owns a sports team and he's doing that successfully. He then does the space thing successfully. Then he has this obsession with Jimi Hendrix and he plays the electric guitar like a fiend. And so he goes out and he basically creates this entire museum around Jimi Hendrix. And it's a really interesting story about how the family that owned all the Jimi Hendrix music got basically bamboozled into giving away the copyrights to all of his music and stuff like that. And then Paul Allen kind of helped the family get the copyrights back and built this museum around it because he's just a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. So he has this music side to him. He has this really creative side and this programming side. It's just amazing all the stuff that this guy has done. We're just going to hit on this real fast stick, but this Wired World chapter 18 was also interesting where he invested huge sums of money in a cable company. And this ended up being disastrous for him in the long run. So that whole discussion, and it's a very long discussion in the book, and I think it's very worth your time to read this book simply for this discussion, to see how he was making some enormous mistakes. And I think something else that I gained from this chapter was I think he really gained an appreciation for Bill Gates's talent as a manager and an executive to execute and to mitigate risks and to do real firm understanding of what to value, what not to value, because that was what Bill Gates was adding in this relationship. And I don't think Paul Allen really understood that until he went through this experience with trying to own this cable company and just being a total disaster for him. It's actually interesting when you look at what Paul Allen did after Microsoft, is that he actually didn't really manage to make money after that. At some point in time, I think he was the third richest man in the US, something like that. And he actually, it's not that he lost like all his money, but he had a really hard time accumulating his capital, which was actually something that was really interesting. And he had a really hard time for the business ventures that he set up to monetize them. Yes, he did the space program and that was successful and his teams won a lot of gains. But in terms of setting up like his own company with Paul Allen in the driver's seat and actually making money and compounding his capital, as far as I know, ever since he actually didn't manage really to do that successfully. A lot of critics have been saying that he really needed a Bill Gates to pull it off. And he always says, no, 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 that's not the problem. And there's been all kinds of other problems, but he actually didn't manage to do that, even though he's investing in a ton of companies with him in operations really to pull something through. And I think that's interesting. All right, Stig. So after reading this book, we both liked it. What was your number one takeaway that you think you learned from reading this? Paul's reflections about the future of Microsoft. I felt that was really insightful. 
and especially his discussion about how he felt that Microsoft lost a lot of opportunities in social media, in terms of search engines, and also in terms of how the world is transitioning away from personal computers. And that was actually something that he already predicted in 2010. And he said that basically he saw the personal computer in many ways to be obsolete. And it's really interesting when you look at Microsoft's business segments and how they're making money and where they're making money. It's interesting to see that it's really still a personal computer company. And I'm not saying that you know, this is not the future and the future looks bleak for Microsoft or anything like that. But I think it's interesting if you really break down where they're making money that it's in the operating systems for personal computers. And that you have a division here in cloud, which might be the future. And then they have a division, the business processes, which is for the office package and the types of software that they have. And the thing is interesting that the three areas that he really pinpoints, the social media and the user experience and the search engines, that's still areas where Microsoft are struggling. The way that Paul talks about this in the book is that he feels it's a very big problem, like they're losing to Apple in terms of the smartphones, in terms of the user experience, people transitioning away from the PC. He's talking about how they're trailing Google. Google's global market share for searches, that's 75%. And Bing, Microsoft's browser, actually second, but it's only with 8.4. So there's so they're definitely still way behind and probably expect to, to be doing so for quite a while. And in terms of social media, and this was also one of the things that Paul mentions that, I know I'm deviating a bit here from the book, but when I see the recent acquisition of LinkedIn, $26.2 billion, they are paying $196 per share. And the earnings per share for LinkedIn is negative one18 and I know that the people at Microsoft are super smart, but it seems to be a very expensive acquisition for something that they want to add to their portfolio rather than build on their existing competences, and especially when you look at the price. But the thing is, I'm not sure that it's so much of a problem that they might be trailing, call it Apple, Google, and Facebook. I mean, they have their own niche and it's not necessarily a bad thing that other people have a huge market share in, in other parts of the market if that's not where the main focus is. So this was my main takeaway from this book. Without Allen, this doesn't happen. And also without Gates, this doesn't happen. And I think when you look at both of these guys love programming, but beyond that common interest... Paul Allen was the guy that was really seeing the direction that things were going. He was the guy who had the foresight. He was the idea guy. He was the one coming up with all these creative ideas on how to do it. Bill Gates was the guy that could actually do it. He was the guy who could execute. He's the guy who could give the orders to make it happen. And you can't have one without the other and build success. You know, you can go out and you can study every single book in the world, but if you don't know how to actually put it into application and execute on that information and those ideas, the knowledge and the ideas are totally worthless. And if you're the person who just goes out there and just starts running and starts executing, but you have no knowledge or no foresight, you're just running down the wrong path. And so you have to combine those two skill sets in order to get the excellence that you see that these two produced for decades when they were developing Microsoft. And that's the thing I really captured and took away from this book is you've got to have both 
You just can't have one or the other. Okay, at this point on the show, we're not going to answer a question from the audience. Instead, we want to highlight an outstanding member of our community that has been making numerous contributions in a couple different areas. So he goes by G-Man on our forum, and G-Man has been making tons of contributions. In addition to that, he's setting up a local investors podcast chapter in Singapore. And so, G-Man, we just want to give you two things from Stig and myself, and that's a free subscription to Stig's chapter-by-chapter Intelligent Investor video course that we have on our website on the TIP Academy. And also, we're going to give you a free subscription to our ETF video course. Both of these courses are a paid course that we have on our site, so we're giving those to you completely for free for everything that you're doing. And we can't thank you enough for all your contributions to the community. It really means a lot to us. Okay, guys, that was the end of this week's episode. We'll see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.